You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. The characters we're going to discuss today, the two main characters at least, and really the story itself, are all extensions of the discussion we had about the English East India Company. Now that company doesn't play a role in today's story, but there are connections there. The Virginia Company shared a bunch of investors and shareholders, and officials, and even naval commanders with the East India Company. We're going to begin with one of my favorite characters, Christopher Newport. Now, Newport was not a pirate. He was a loyal and law-abiding privateer. But he has all the trappings of a pirate. You know, in his youth, he was a dashing, charming, handsome, talented sailor. He had that Shakespearean goatee and mustache combination that was so popular with Elizabethans and modern-day hipsters. But he could fence and he could dance and he was literate. He knew how to read and write. And he also knew how to charm an audience with his tales. Suffice it to say, whenever this good-looking young rogue arrived in court or in port, he was very popular. As Christopher Newport aged, he grew into the figure of the old captain. He grew a big beard and scars on his face and lost one of his arms, which he replaced with a hook. But I think my favorite part of piratical cachet that Christopher Newport carried is his position, the position in which he usually found himself. Christopher Newport was almost always the underdog. Despite that, though, he almost always came out on top, through either his sheer force of will or his formidable talent, and when he failed, he did so with style. Now, his career looked very much like a pirate's career. You know, he was a privateer, during the war at least, but he followed a code on his vessels that looks not dissimilar to latter pirate codes. For example corporal punishment. It wasn't outright banned on his ship, but he usually left the decisions of guilt and punishment up to the crew. 
unless they offended him personally. He followed orders when they were handed down to him, but when he was left to his own devices, Christopher Newport looks like Henry Morgan. He captured the Madre de Dios. That was the richest and grandest hall in all of the 1500s. And then in 1605, under a new king, Christopher Newport attempted an invasion of Spanish Jamaica. And it was almost successful. He was repelled, but he very nearly won the island for England 50 years before the Morgan family would invade. Christopher Newport is impressive and he's fun. He had, well, he had quite a career. But he intersects with our story today when King James I granted a charter to the Virginia Company in 1606. The shareholders of that Virginia Company of London were rich. They were usually powerful landed aristocrats, but even those that weren't members of the aristocracy were so rich that no one dared mention it, at least not to their face. The Virginia Company's governing body wrote a secret charter for the company's first voyage. They were sealed and handed to Christopher Newport, but nobody but those who had written the charter knew what they said, not even Newport. All they told Newport was that he was to command their maiden voyage to America and unseal their commands once they reached Virginia. Newport gathered his fleet of three ships that carried 105 men. Now it carried only men. This was a voyage of soldiers and hunters and construction workers, very much like the first voyage to the Roanoke colony. The 120-ton Susan Constant was the flagship of that fleet, and it was commanded by Admiral Newport. The smallest ship in the fleet was the 20-ton Discovery, but then there was the 40-ton Godspeed. And the Godspeed was captained by our next player in today's story, John Smith. This is episode 152, An Ambitious, Unworthy, Vainglorious Fellow. I'm going to be upfront about this. I don't like John Smith as much as I like Christopher Newport. In fact, I don't like John Smith at all. Although I should, at least on paper, like John Smith. He lived an amazing life. At 16, John Smith left home to fight as a mercenary in the Huguenot forces of King Henry IV of France, and then, when that war was over, he went to fight for William the Silent in the Dutch Revolt. And then, he sailed south to the Mediterranean to join the Barbary pirates that were sailing out of Saleh, and he earned honors and recognition within the ranks of the Ottoman Empire through his feats of battle. I could have told the story of the 1500s through his eyes, but I don't want to because I don't like John Smith. A large part of the reason that I dislike John Smith so much is because of his role in this story. On their voyage to America, when they were stopped at the Canary Islands, John Smith attempted a mutiny against Christopher Newport. Now, that's not the bad thing. I mean, I'm always in favor of a good mutiny pulled off by an accomplished pirate. Of course, he didn't pull it off. Smith failed in his mutiny, and there at the Canary Islands he was arrested and clapped in irons. 
John Smith himself wrote his own account of what happened there in the third person, as he was fond of doing. He said that he had been, quote, restrained as a prisoner upon the scandalous suggestions of some of the chief people envying his repute, who feigned he intended to usurp the government, murder the council, and make himself king, that his confederates were dispersed in all three ships, and that diverse of his confederates that revealed it would affirm it. For this he was committed as prisoner. Thirteen weeks he remained thus. End quote. In John Smith's account, everyone, from Christopher Newport on down to his own confederates, were all lying about him and his true intentions. They all said he intended to murder the council and make himself king, but that is absolutely ridiculous. In John Smith's view, Christopher Newport, not giving his men the option in this case, sentenced him to hang once they reached American shores. The fleet entered Chesapeake Bay on the 26th of April, 1607. Their very first landfall, known to history as their first landing, was at the southern cape of the bay called Cape Henry. They named it that after King James' eldest son, and also his presumptive heir. The North Cape, on the other hand, was called Charles, after the son who would go on to be Charles I, but they didn't name that till later. There at Cape Henry, Christopher Newport was preparing to hang John Smith for his attempted mutiny, but while everything was being prepared, Newport did as ordered and opened the charter from his bosses back in London. And that was impeccable timing, at least as far as John Smith was concerned. The Virginia Company shareholders had named him to the Council of Virginia, and for Christopher Newport, even as the admiral of the voyage to hang one of the councilmen on his first day in America, well, that didn't look good. So John Smith went free, to the sorrow of everyone in Virginia, the colonists and the Native Americans. It's easy to like Christopher Newport on the one hand and demonize John Smith on the other, strictly based upon their treatment of Native Americans. I have a biography of Chris Newport that reads, quote, Captain Newport treated Indians with respect and attempted to win their cooperation through trading rather than using physical force to subdue them. Unlike John Smith and other military leaders of the Virginia colony, he did not attack the Indians or steal food from them, nor did he enslave them. End quote. And that's all true, but it's a bit simplified. There are complexities to that 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 quote, and honestly that book, don't dive into. First, we need to realize that Christopher Newport was a naval commander. He didn't spend that much time in Virginia, and when he was there, he spent most of his time building shipyards. Now, Christopher Newport was the first commander in Virginia to make contact with the Native Americans living nearby, the Powhatan people. We'll get to them in a minute. And he did trade with them. He did earn at least a moderate amount of trust. But that was really his only dealings with the Powhatan people. It's entirely possible that, given time and opportunity, Christopher Newport would have stepped on the same cultural landmines 
as John Smith did. However, Newport, being so commonly away from the colony, didn't dictate policy, and John Smith did. And thus he is guilty of all kinds of abuses against the Native American peoples. It was those abuses, as well as John Smith's treatment of the colonists there in Jamestown, that would lead one of his contemporaries to dub him an ambitious, unworthy, and vainglorious fellow. And it wasn't just any contemporary, it was a man named George Percy who would follow John Smith as the president of the council of Jamestown. The man who will have to live with the fallout of the events that will concern us over the next couple of weeks. But before we get to that, all of these colonists had a job to do in Virginia. After naming the council members for the colony, the shareholders ordered them to choose a site for their settlement that was far enough inland that passing Spanish ships wouldn't notice them. But that site also had to have access to the sea and, preferably, a deep-water harbor. Now, the site had to be defensible from any Native American tribes that might attack by land, but they had to be close enough to land that they could easily move to the mainland for any military or agricultural or further colonial aims. All of those goals seemed to be in conflict with one another. They're contradictory. But they were also necessary. So the settlers chose the best site that they could find, despite the flaws that would soon become quite apparent. Take a look at a map of coastal Virginia for me. Chesapeake Bay is fed by dozens of rivers, maybe hundreds of smaller tributaries. But the bay itself has four primary rivers that lead east. Their names are essentially the story of early English colonization. We'll get to those. But these colonists chose the southernmost river, and they named it the James. That would be the site, deep, deep down the river, of their colony called Jamestown. The English, of course, also gave us names like Spanish Town and Port Royal and Fort Charles. They weren't the most original when it came to names. But the site they chose for Jamestown was on the tip of a peninsula feeding into the James River. Any passing ships that weren't, for some reason, traveling down the James River would not notice them, but it did have a deep-water harbor nearby where a port could be built, giving access to the sea. It was a good location. The real coup in all of this was another river, what they called the Back River, because, get this, it was in the back, but the Back River separated the tip of that peninsula from the mainland, now, it's not a huge river, as far as the other waterways in the region were concerned, but it was enough to offer that tip of the peninsula a very defensible position from anyone who might attack by land. Now, the early days of the Jamestown settlement aren't really that relevant. They did everything that you might expect them to do. They built walls and topped them with cannon, making a fort. They built a warehouse and a church and shelter for the colonists. It was all necessary work. But I want to take a moment here to talk about the people that were living in this region already, the Powhatan people. 
Now, I call them the Powhatan people, but that's not exactly accurate. Really, they should be called the Powhatan Confederacy, which was a coalition of smaller tribes that were organized under the High Chief Powhatan. Now, I like the High Chief. He reminds me in a lot of ways of Vercingetorix, the Celtic leader who unified Gaul against Julius Caesar. The Powhatan, of course, were not as militarily powerful as the Gallic people, nor as populous, but, I mean, the English weren't exactly the Romans either. But the spirit here is very much the same. This is an indigenous people that is under threat from outside forces. For the Gauls, there were the Germans threatening them from across the Rhine, and for the Powhatan, there was the Mississippi Confederation that was coming up from the south. Both of them made alliances with foreign, militarily strong powers, the English and the Romans, respectively, and both of those alliances turned out to be dangerous. And I mean existentially dangerous for the people there. But the Powhatan knew that they were coming. Previous voyages that were not full of colonists had agreed to buy a piece of land in the region from the Powhatan people. The English did this with their permission. And then Christopher Newport met with the chief's eldest son and traded with him, setting the groundwork for peaceful cohabitation and even the possibility of an alliance. At the beginning, things were looking up, and the Powhatan very kindly sent some of their men to the English to help them establish their colony. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. But it was John Smith that screwed everything up. At this point, Christopher Newport had left the colony. He was going back to England to gather supplies and more colonists. And John Smith wasn't the president of the council, but he was the one who made this decision. To understand how exactly John Smith so offended the Powhatan people, 
we should take a moment to look at some of their traditions. First, let's talk about Native American warfare amongst the woodland peoples. Before the arrival of guns and horses, the woodland tribes fought with bows, spears, javelins, and shields. It looked kind of like European warfare, minus the guns. They had shield walls and spear formations and arrow volleys. However, that was only in the big battles. Most fighting done by Native American peoples was done by small raiding parties, groups of people that would sneak in during the dark of night to steal food and booze and weapons, and human beings. There have been correlations drawn between the pirates consorting with indigenous peoples and their early adoption of what looked quite a lot like indigenous tactics. But the goals were different. When woodland tribes raided one another, they did so not to massacre or to utterly defeat one's enemies, but to humiliate their foes, to show their superiority over the enemy, and to take their women. You know, war is all about resources like land and food and money, Modern-day war has a lot more to do with rare-earth minerals, but the key resource in tribal warfare was always women. That's something that societies lose as they advance in size. Once communities have a large enough gene pool that they no longer have to rely on outside sources, they no longer have to capture foreign women. But it's something that we see not just from the Native Americans, but from tribal societies of all stripes. Take Vercingetorix. His Celtic Gauls and the Germans nearby did that sort of thing all the time. But it wasn't killing all the men and burning their village and carrying the women away in chains. That total warfare wasn't how things were done. It was a real fight. People bled and people died in these battles, but... The victors walked away with resources, as much as they could carry, and new brides. And, at least in the case of the woodland tribes, they were brides, not slaves. I really have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I don't know that I can understand how those women must have felt. I can't imagine that they were thrilled about it, but they weren't held in captivity. They weren't resigned to their unhappy fate. Most Native American women, who lived under circumstances like that, seemed to accept their new lives and their new husbands. And we see this sort of thing later on in the American West. You know, there would be pioneer girls who were carried off after an Indian raid, but oftentimes they would be found years later with husbands and children. And often they didn't want to leave. And of course that's not always how things went. There are old ideas like the noble savage ideal, and of course there are drastic differences between different nations and tribal people, but I personally think that it's a question of values. We might find behavior like that unacceptable, amoral even, but to those women who had been captured, their new husbands had just proved themselves to be brave, capable warriors. They proved that they could be protectors and providers. But then again, just because many of these women were satisfied with their new accommodations, we shouldn't assume that life was great 
We can't paint with a utopian brush here. I mean, life was hard, and women in these societies were second-class citizens. It looks once again like Gallic or Nordic tribal peoples. And the way that their women were treated often looks almost progressive compared to, you know, the Roman people or even the English of the era in which we're speaking. But it wasn't really. You know, those women still had duties that they had to adhere to. They had to bear children and raise them. And they had to, well, they had to carry stuff. When they were on the move, as tribal peoples often were, the men had to be ready to defend everyone. And the women had to do the cooking and preserving and the fire tending and all of those domestic duties. And they had to do the farming, and I want you to pay attention to the farming. Because, at least among the eastern woodland tribes, it was strictly a woman's job. Meanwhile, the men had to be prepared to fight, but they only actually fought very occasionally. Most of the time, they were hunting or fishing, or building canoes or riding around in the canoes that they had just built. You know, come to think of it, that sounds like a perfectly equitable society to me, even an ideal towards which I think we should all work. But I bring all of that up because John Smith made a huge mistake here. He, with those Poetan men who had been sent to aid these new colonials, he put those men to work in the fields, which admittedly was necessary work. They had to sow until they were trying to grow crops to eat. But those men, those Poetan men, I don't think they would have minded any other sort of work, hunting or fishing or scouting or even helping to build their structures. They would have been fine with that. But instead they were made to farm. And you know, gender roles today aren't nearly as strong as they were in the past, and they're nothing compared to what they were in tribal societies, but I have trouble even coming up with a good analogy that would make sense to modern people. However, being made to farm in the eyes of these Poetan men was an affront to their masculinity, to their pride, to their honor, and even to their society. The English had turned these men into women, and that suggested that they thought of the Poetan as second-class citizens. As soon as this state of affairs became apparent, relations with the Poetan immediately soured. They stopped trading with the English, and they attacked the fort to rescue those men who were... Well, there are a lot of euphemisms that one hears about the status of those Poetan men. You know, their servants, or indentured servants even, or I've seen volunteer laborers before. If that was really the case, then why did a party of Poetan warriors, who were friends with the English just a few months earlier, why did they raid the fort in an attempt to rescue those men? The Poetan were slaves. The English, John Smith in particular, yeah, but the English as a whole were just arrogant enough to assume that the Poetan had realized their apparent inferiority and just given them slaves. They saw nothing wrong with what they had done, and they saw it as a betrayal when the Poetan attacked them. Near the end of 1607, in December, 
Christopher Newport returned to the colony at Jamestown, and he was appalled at what he saw there. While he had been gone, about 62 people had died. There were only 38 Englishmen left alive in Jamestown. Now some had died in attacks from the Poetan, but most had starved to death. We know that Newport was confused, we know he was furious, and that he demanded answers, and we know that John Smith told him tales of the treacherous Poetan and their many raids, but we don't have Christopher Newport's thoughts on the validity of that explanation. Still, Newport brought in a ton of food for the colonists and a few more cannons to help bulk up their defenses. There were muskets as well and a hundred additional men. Two women came with him as well. This was just the shot in the arm that Jamestown needed, and by April they seemed to be up and running again. So, once the colony seemed to be in good working order, Newport left on yet another supply run. His ships were filled with the colony's only export thus far, which he was thrilled with at the time. He had hundreds of pounds of gold. But of course, it was only fool's gold. It was pyrite. That's why the settlers had had so much trouble growing food. They were busy prospecting fool's gold. Still, after Christopher Newport's visit, the colonists did appear to attempt real agriculture, enough food to keep them on their feet. It's around this time that we hear John Smith's maxim, He who does not work will not eat. In August, John Smith left Jamestown to go out and explore the Chesapeake. It was a voyage of exploration, but it was also an attempt to find other sources of food, other tribes that weren't affiliated with the Powhatan to trade with him. Now, he did find one group willing to trade, but it took about a month to reach them, and they didn't have much surplus. On their way back to Jamestown, John Smith and his party were attacked by Powhatan warriors. And about this time, we run into a problem. We have a really hard time discerning fact from fiction. See, we really only have the one account of everything that happened at Jamestown, and that's the account of John Smith. Now, we have dissent from virtually every other literate man that survived, but they don't give their own records. Generations of historians have tried to conjure the truth of what may have really happened over the following months, but there aren't any Poetan records to compare it with. Really, we only have John Smith's account, and I, for one, don't believe a word of it. And I'm really not alone. Smith tells us that the English were attacked and ambushed on a march inland. All of his men were killed, but Smith managed to survive by taking one of the Powhatan warriors prisoner. It was apparently one of the chief's sons. Smith used that warrior as a human shield and negotiated his way back to Chief Powhatan. The chief, though, as you might imagine when his son was used as a human shield, was incensed and demanded the immediate execution of John Smith. 
Warriors grabbed him, tied him on posts to the ground, and prepared to execute him with a club. But right then, the chief's 13-year-old daughter, Pocahontas, interceded. I'll let John Smith himself tell it. He writes, quote, At the minute of my execution, she hazarded the beating out of her own brains to save mine. And not only that, but so prevailed with her father that I was safely conducted to Jamestown. End quote. Some historians have suggested that this was a ceremonial event. Once John Smith's men were defeated and killed, they took him to a ceremonial execution in which it was a woman's job to save the foreign commander, that is to humiliate them without killing one of their leaders, the sort of thing that we do see in a lot of tribal societies. But others have pointed out that this was not written about in John Smith's diaries there at Jamestown. It was only written about years later, after Princess Pocahontas had been married off to a Virginia planter and brought to England. To hear Smith tell it, though, this girl had clearly fallen in love with him, and he used that to the advantage of the English people, in his telling. He negotiated a new treaty by trading some bauble to the chief, and once again, the colony at Jamestown had peace and plenty. It was an amazing time, according to Smith. The sky was filled with rainbows and gold fell from heaven. The Poetan just kept throwing them parties and all of the women really enjoyed themselves. And Smith, I heard, even tamed a wild unicorn. And then, tragedy. There was a sudden infestation of rats and all of their grain spoiled and a bunch of people died all within only a few days and this is the really embarrassing part you guys right then is when the second supply mission showed up unexpectedly i mean everything was just amazing there in jamestown thanks entirely to John Smith and his powers of seduction over a 13-year-old, until like a week before you guys arrived. I know it looks bad, but trust me. Biographies of John Smith will point to this period before the second supply mission arrived as a time when things were great in Jamestown, but no evidence supports that claim except for the journals of John Smith. The journals of those who arrived paint a very different picture of a colony once again, thanks to Smith, on the brink of collapse. However, even though this mission was not commanded by Christopher Newport, they once again saved them by dropping off plenty of food and tools. They even dropped off a few German and Polish colonists, and as soon as the supply mission went back to England, once again everything was rainbows and unicorns under the wise and benevolent rule, <clears throat> pardon me, the benevolent leadership of John Smith. Again, none of that's true. John Smith was a braggart, and he was a liar, and he wrote all of this years after the fact. He did so simply to secure his position in the company. For example... One of those German or Polish settlers 
warned John Smith of an impending attack from the Powhatan that he had seen signs of. John Smith did everything one does in that situation, called the men to arms, fired back on them, fought them off. But in his memoirs, after Pocahontas was in England and kind of famous, he says that Pocahontas sneaked into the fort, into his private chambers, you understand, to warn him of the danger approaching from her father's forces. None of that happened. John Smith was a disaster, and what was to come is going to prove it. See, the colonists were awaiting yet another supply mission, this time under Christopher Newport, and once again they had abandoned agriculture and begun digging for fool's gold. But that supply mission, which was to be their salvation, was the voyage of the Sea Venture. That's the ship that would crash so famously on the coast of Bermuda. Now that's the story that leads to the English colonization of Bermuda, and of course William Shakespeare's play The Tempest. But for our purposes, it spelled disaster for the Jamestown settlers. Next time, we're going to discuss the fruits of John Smith's labor, what is known to history as the Starving Time. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or signed up to support the show through the website, which, by the way, at very long last, is finally back up and running at full potential, I'd also like to thank everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. That helps get the show noticed, and without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.